12 seconds. 12 seconds is all it took to make history back in 1903. It was on the outer banks of North Carolina, an ecosystem not too different from the one down here in Florida. The swamps and sounds of the northeastern edge of North Carolina push right up to the beaches, and a line of barrier islands make up a magnificent tourist location. But out there, there is a town called Kill Devil Hills, an exceptionally good town name if you ask me. Well, out there at Kill Devil Hills on December 17, 1903, a piece of human engineering did the impossible. It caught wind and lifted from the ground with one pilot, a man named Orville Wright. He and his brother Wilbur of Dayton, Ohio, had built a craft called the Wright Flyer, using their experience in bicycles and their interest in aircraft to develop the first quote-unquote heavier-than-air aircraft. It traveled 120 feet over the North Carolina sands, moving at just under 7 miles an hour. It was a resounding success, and both Wilbur and Orville took their turns flying the Flyer. This is from NASA, quote, The brothers completed three other flights that day, taking turns piloting the longest traveling 852 feet in 59 seconds. The highest altitude reached in any of the flights was about 10 feet, end quote. That's quite an accomplishment for the very first flight of its kind, and it was just the beginning of the experiments that the Wright brothers would do as they continued to develop their prototype and as they tried to sell it. The Wright brothers looked at everything they could to understand how to generate something that could achieve flight. Apparently, an obsession with a floating helicopter toy first caught their interest. Then, the work of Leonardo da Vinci, who famously dreamed of human flight, led them further into the project. From there, they built a plane. It wasn't just a glider that caught the breeze and took off. No, there was an engine connected to two propellers via a chain system that resembled the type used in the bicycles that the Wright brothers worked on. The propellers were between the wings, wings made of, quote, pure, untreated muslin fabric, end quote. The frame itself was made of ash and spruce, quote, two lightweight but durable types of wood, end quote. It's an extraordinarily simple design, wood, fabric, engine, propellers, but if you put all these ideas together in the right situation, it's obvious to us now that machine was bound to take flight. But just because it's obvious to us now doesn't mean that it, it just generated uh, from nothing. Someone had to come up with it. We know that that was what the early planes were now, but someone had to design that. Keep that in mind this entire episode. This wasn't just something that that seemed obvious. Someone had to come up with the right idea how to do that, and for this, it was the Wright brothers. The weather apparently helped, with strong winds coming off the ocean, which was the exact reason the Wright brothers chose the location on North Carolina's outer banks. So this plane of wood and fabric, with a wingspan of a little over 40 feet, weighing over 600 pounds, launched. There was a rail system that shot it forward off the sand. It caught that whipping wind from the Atlantic and carried it into the air. The rest is history. It would never fly again after that day, however. It wrecked during the testing that day and was never flightworthy again, though that original first plane is at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C., my personal favorite museum. If you can see it, I can personally recommend it. It is something else. But it wouldn't be the last time the Wright brothers would fly. In fact, the story I just told you is the one everyone knows of a prototype, wooden fabric, Kitty Hawk, Kill Devil Hills, their bicycle shop, all the things you've known probably since you were a kid. As long as I've known anything, I've known Orville and Wilbur, and I never thought anything about their lives after that windy day in 1903. They made that first plane and then, bam, airplanes 
existed, right? Well, there were other people involved in the story of how airplanes came to be a part of our lives in the modern day. There was one man, in fact, who had a huge impact in the future of aircraft prototypes. He was inspired by Orville and Wilbur, he was even friends with them, and his name was Hugh Willoughby, a character in his own right, an adventurer, a pilot, an inventor, whose work intermingled with and impacted the Wright brothers. Now, where did Willoughby fly some of his planes, some of those early drafts, this, these ideas of, of bringing a human into the sky? Well, he didn't fly them in Kitty Hawk, no, one of them in particular, the Pelican, he flew right down here in Florida. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week, Florida's first flight. How an eccentric character took the Wright brothers by storm and built his own airplanes to expand what early flight could even be. We're going to meet Willoughby on all his adventures and take you to the unique museum presenting his story down in Stewart, Florida that I stumbled onto that launched this episode in the first place. In fact, that, that's where we will begin this episode. Last week, we spent the day at the Florida Oceanographic Coastal Center with our friend Dr. Larray Simpson, right? Well, next to the Coastal Center is a Publix, which I stopped by before meeting up with Larray. And as I hopped back in my car to go over to the Coastal Center, I noticed something across the street, a large, beautiful museum with the sign up front that read the Elliott Museum. I noticed a baseball in the logo. I, I was confused. I, was there some sort of baseball museum that I've never heard of? That doesn't sound like me. I'm a huge baseball fan. I know all the baseball museums in this area. So the name of this museum didn't ring a bell. I asked Lorray about it as our day was winding down, and she laughed, saying that the Elliott Museum was right up my alley, which I took as a compliment, and <laughs> I decided to go check it out. I took her advice. I drove across the street with no expectation of what was within, and immediately I was blown away. But first, let me tell you about the Elliott Museum and who it's named for, who that eponymous Elliott is. The original Elliott Museum opened in 1961, funded by a man named Harmon Elliott. Harmon Elliott's father was an inventor named Sterling Elliott, who invented a type of bicycle called a quadricycle and a type of magazine wrapper addressing device that spawned the Elliott dressing machine company <laughs> he, he was he, he put like labels on magazines to address them to send them out to people i guess sterling clearly had many ideas for innovations and inventions quote he held more than 125 patents receiving his first at age 22 end quote he's making me look like an absolute chump i have no patents and i'm almost 27 one that really sticks out to me of the patents that he has is one called a the not tying machine which i think is a machine whose name speaks for itself. <laughs> Maybe it ties a knot. I don't know. I'm just going to assume that it ties knots and just leave it at that. But he also invented the kingpin, which was a part of early automobile design. Quote, he worked out the issues of the unequal turning of the front wheels of a vehicle and invented the steering knuckle. End quote. If you know anything about cars and that rings a bell to you, let me know because that sounds cool, but I don't know anything about cars. Sounds like something that sort of keeps the axles. I don't know what I'm talking about but if you do reach out to me if you know what the kingpin is or that that knuckle that he's talking about let me know because that guy invented it he was selling bicycles as well including bicycles to women which apparently at the time was quite a progressive business decision according to the elliott museum's website sterling also spoke up against the league of american wheelmen which was apparently a bicycle league at the end of the 19th century in fact willoughby who we're going to talk about 
in a little bit, the, the main subject of this episode, he actually was a founder of the League of American Wheelmen, which is a, an interesting coincidence. But anyway, quote, when the League banned African-Americans from bicycle racing, Elliot fought for their equal rights and supported black racer Marshall Taylor, who then became the first world champion bicyclist, end quote. I've never heard of Marshall Taylor, but I read his story in, during this research, and what an interesting person. Check him out, Marshall Taylor. He's got quite a story. If there was more of a Florida connection, I'd tell you about him too, but there isn't much, but truly, very, very interesting person. Go check him out. But Sterling Elliott was a fascinating figure, and clearly his son agreed, so the museum was built in his honor. The first museum closed in 2011, and this new museum has been here since 2013. It's beautiful, it's fascinating, and it's filled with stuff that recollects Sterling Elliott's history and also the Elliott family's collection of things that they had uh, as a family for generations. Right through the doors was a pendulum, a massive metal object swinging from high above a photograph of Earth, swinging and knocking down these blocks slowly. I was considering standing and watching it continue to swing until it knocked over a block, but I don't have time for that. Immediately, my eye caught a familiar sight right through the doors, however, the vibrant colors and natural landscapes of my favorite painters, the Highwaymen. We've talked about them on this show. I'll include a link so you can uh, listen to our episode about the Highwaymen. But the Highwaymen were a group of black artists, mostly men but some women, who painted art of Florida nature in an informal style and sold the paintings out of the back of their cars. Now, original Highwaymen paintings, of which there are hundreds and hundreds, are sold for a few hundred dollars and exhibits around the country. It's amazing. They were painted on the sides of roads, sold on the sides of roads, and now they're in museums. There was probably a hundred Highwaymen paintings in this exhibit. This isn't a permanent exhibit, so I felt very privileged that it was there when I was there, and I got to see some of the, the absolutely incredible work firsthand. Every time I see the Highwaymen, it feels like I'm seeing old friends. I spent a long time at this museum, but most of it was in the room with these beautiful Florida vignettes, just taking them in one by one. If you've seen them in person, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The next room, however, was completely striking. It was filled with old vehicles from the late 1800s, early 1900s. There was an old school bus, some old race cars, and plenty of Ford Model T vehicles. There was even an early car that kind of resembled like a horse wagon buggy. It was from 1886 called the Benz Patent Motor Wagon. But what really catches your attention is not the massive showroom of old cars, but the windowed garage on the far wall. Yes, going up three stories on the far side of this vehicle showroom, there is a stacking garage where vehicles can be brought down in an elevator of sorts and brought to a central spot where an audience of giddy onlookers can examine the beautiful old cars. It's the only way I can describe it is it's like a vending machine for cars. You know, like those vending machines where you put in the thing and then a little cup goes up and grabs your soda from a shelf and brings it down and deposits it. That, that That's what this thing looked like, except the second and third floors were being fixed. They, they weren't working properly at the moment, so it was only vehicles from the first floor. But still, this little thing would go and grab a car and the car would slide onto this little this little platform and then it would bring it over to the showroom with all these beautiful lights on it and then it would sort of spin around so you could get a full look at it it was amazing i've never seen anything like it no other museum has this type of garage in america and i can imagine seeing it at full functionality where it can go all the way up is surreal apparently this type of garage was imagined by sterling elliott as well listen the guy had a lot of ideas and it's Honestly, kind of a, an unbelievable thing to see something this sort of futuristic in, in a museum. I just had never 
heard of this museum and it totally surprised me to stumble upon something this cool in this museum. Head upstairs and you'll find the spot where I could have spent the rest of my day, the Baseball Artifact Collection. There were bats used by Roberto Clemente, Babe Ruth, Shoeless Joe Jackson. There were baseballs signed by Hank Aaron, Reggie Jackson, Mickey Mantle. But the most staggering collection was the display of baseball cards. Let me see if I can describe this correctly. There were two cases. Within each case, there were a dozen columns. Each column had four sides, and on each side there were eight baseball cards. So if you touched a button in front of a column, it would rotate to reveal eight more cards on another side of the column. Does that make sense? If you cannot visualize it, go to the Instagram. You'll see a picture of it so you can see it yourself. There were 26 columns. Some of them were blank, but most of them were filled. It was just unbelievable. Signed baseball cards from icons of the sport going back 100 years. It was it was amazing. I could have spent all day there. If you're a baseball fan, I cannot recommend checking it out. It's it's fascinating. But there is so much to see. There was a recreation of an old general store with some strange artifacts within. There was an art gallery for modern artists. There was a section dedicated to the violent Ashley gang from Florida. We'll talk about them sometime. There was a library where a man sat and chatted with me about the museum for a while. There's a section dedicated to the bicycles designed by Sterling Elliott. There was glass cases filled with dioramas and miniatures. There were sketches drawn by a famous opera singer named Enrico Caruso. It's a collection of the most strange fascinating sort of disparate from different eras and different people and different types of artifacts throughout history just thrown together to create a museum experience unlike anything I've ever seen it was I, I was fascinated each room I went into I had no idea what I was going to stumble into next there was so much to see and I look forward to going again and, and bringing someone with me so they can trust me that it exists but one thing most caught my attention the one thing that allowed me to make this episode the replica of an airplane hanging from the ceiling apparently flown and created by one Hugh Willoughby before we go any further, I want to just cite my main source for this episode. It is from HistoryNet.com. It is an article titled, Meet Hugh Willoughby, the Wealthy Dilettante Turned Aviation Pioneer. It's written by a man named David Boneland. That last name is spelled B-O-E-H-N-L-E-I-N. If you go to the episode description, you will find a link to this article. It is a great read that goes even more into Willoughby's work and even more into the technicalities of these planes and how he designed them. Go check it out. Great read. Thank you to HistoryNet.com. It's a great article. All right, moving on. Let's talk about Hugh Willoughby. Hugh Willoughby is the textbook example of a Renaissance man who was able to be a Renaissance man because he came from wealth. His full name is Hugh de la Salle Willoughby, born in 1856 to a wealthy family, his father being a banker. He got a degree in mining engineering, which is not a field I knew one could get a degree in. Despite his degree, he never worked in mining, but clearly his interest in engineering brought him to a relationship with transportation vehicles of all types, boats, planes, bicycles, and balloons. The man apparently adored hot air balloons. He once called ballooning, quote, the king of sports, end quote. I don't know what that means. There's a great photo of him from 1900 where he is at the iconic, famous Paris World's Fair where he is in a hot air balloon and there's this great photo of him where he is just beaming into the camera. He's just so happy. Clearly, he loved flight, which we'll come back to in a little bit. The man loved to explore, to travel, to see what was out there, and Florida presented a unique location of exploration for the man. You see, in 1897, Willoughby found himself in our Florida 
Everglades. At this time, at the end of the 1800s, the Everglades were a place that very few white people had ever been. European colonizers found South Florida to be overwhelming to chart and did not know how to handle the intense ecosystem around them. Native peoples to Florida have been living in the Everglades for centuries, however, and when the Second Seminole War ended in the 1840s, many Seminoles fled to the Everglades. Other Seminoles were forcibly moved by the American government to Oklahoma, but others were able to escape capture and conquest and fled into the Everglades, where they still call themselves the Unconquered People. Hugh Willoughby found that the Everglades presented a remarkable undertaking. If he could chart the Everglades, if he could actually make a map of the waterways using equipment at his disposal, he'd be the first non-native person to ever do such a thing. South Florida was still new to development. Julia Tuttle had only founded Miami the year before, in 1896, the same year that Henry Flagler's train line successfully reached the city, making Miami a destination and a boomtown all at once. Willoughby saw opportunity down there in South Florida and he took it. Willoughby would write a book on this trip called Across the Everglades, A Canoe Journey of Exploration. Along with a guide, Willoughby hopped into a canoe and beginning on the west coast at the Gulf of Mexico, Willoughby would travel through rivers and waterways of the Everglades, navigating the islands to arrive safely back to the Atlantic. He was in fact aided by Henry Flagler himself, citing Flagler's assistance as, quote, the courtesies of his railroad and the special interests shown by him in the successful issue of my undertaking, end quote. He also thanked Flagler's right-hand man, James Ingram, who actually worked for Flagler's friendly rival, Henry Plant, before he worked for Flagler. Ingram himself actually charted part of the Everglades while on Plant's payroll before moving to Flagler's employ. Willoughby writes, quote, I have also to thank Mr. J.I. Ingram for loaning me the complete and interesting notes made by him during his own expedition, end quote. Further in the book, Willoughby actually says speaking with Ingram is what caught his interest to do this quest in the first place. While Ingram had explored the Everglades, no one had gone into the southern waters of the vast swamp and charted them and tried to measure the actual distances, which Willoughby did with instruments. He writes of his interest in charting the course himself, saying, quote, I then became possessed with the idea that I must go and find out for myself some of the mysteries of this terra incognita. End quote. Terra incognita is a phrase I've always loved. It's Latin, and it essentially just means a place unknown or unexplored. It's a great phrase, and it's clear why Willoughby was so drawn to the expedition. It would prove fruitful, both exploring parts of the region previously uncharted by European colonizers or their ancestors, and in the process, he met some of the Seminoles who lived in the Everglades. Willoughby apparently enjoyed his company with the Seminoles and spoke with extreme respect for the way they lived in the region. We'll come back and talk about this trip another time. Its impact was significant, and a group of explorers even retraced Willoughby's trip just last year. Maybe we can have someone from that trip on the show. If you know someone who did that trip, let me know. I'll look into it. But this was far from the last boundary Willoughby would push within the state of Florida. Though he clearly loved exploring and boating, his heart belonged to the sky, and as aircraft technology continued to advance, Willoughby saw an opportunity to chart new courses in that field as well. Because now that the Wrights had actually taken the step in inventing the flight craft, they were attempting to do the very difficult task of making money off of their invention. A patent was one thing, but selling your creation was extremely difficult, especially with how many risks were present in its invention. Remember, their first plane wrecked within its first few flights. So Orville kept flying the craft in Fort Myer, Virginia, attempting to get the United States Army to give them a contract for the vehicle. 
His brother Wilbur was doing the exact same thing, but across the Atlantic trying to sell the French government on their invention. This proved more difficult than expected as the army had specific requests and qualifications, attempting to see all the flyer could do before they invested in it. But on September 17, 1908, a passenger climbed into the ship, a man named Lieutenant Thomas E. Selfridge. He was from the U.S. Army, meant to prove that the ship could sustain passengers, but when a propeller broke, the ship crashed and Selfridge was killed. Orville, the pilot of the flight, was himself severely injured. Things were looking dour for the future of aircraft engineering. Apparently, during these times when Orville and Wilbur were trying to sell the plane, Willoughby was in correspondence with Orville. My main source for this even states that Willoughby may have even been in Fort Myer with Orville working on the Wright Flyer. Quote, it's likely that Willoughby had started corresponding with the Wrights by this time, for he traveled to Fort Myer and assisted with the demonstrations while also seeking to discuss his own ideas with Orville. End quote. Though Orville did warn Willoughby to not, quote, infringe on any of the Wright brothers' patents, end quote, Willoughby had ideas for aircraft of his own, unique in many ways from the ones the Wrights had built. While the Wright brothers, however, had to work to earn the money to build their planes, that family wealth for Willoughby came in handy and allowed him to make any planes he wanted. That engineering degree and that independent wealth, they were just the recipe for Willoughby to succeed. Over the next few years, he would design and develop two distinct, incredible aircraft with two iconic names. The first was the Warhawk, and the second was the Pelican. His Warhawk was a massive aircraft. His patent for it in 1909 called it an airship. The main idea was that it included these massive, quote-unquote, horizontal rudders, which essentially meant that it could handle a little better going up and down in the air. Over years to come, the design of those additional horizontal rudders would be copied in other planes. The Warhawk was quite a feat. The wingspan was even larger than the Wright Flyer at 44 feet, and it featured a propeller at the front of the airplane rather than at the back, meaning the propeller pulled the plane forward, unlike any other plane in existence at that time. What I can't tell, however, is whether or not the Warhawk actually flew in Florida, there is a photo of the plane that is in the Martin County Historical Record, Martin County being where the city of Stewart is, where Willoughby lived, where the Elliott Museum is. I've seen multiple accounts of Willoughby flying his planes in this region, but I can't tell if the Warhawk ever took flight over Florida. His ship, the Pelican, however, certainly did. Willoughby clearly had a fondness for Florida and our animals, as he named his houseboat the Manatee, and when the time came to build an aquatic airplane, he appropriately named it the Pelican. Doesn't that just make sense? Think about pelicans just sort of lazily float on the top of the water, and then can just go, fly, take off, sail away, and then just back down into the water. Same exact idea. That's why it was named the Pelican. He had a winter home in Florida on a strip of land called Sewell's Point, just west of the Florida Oceanographic Coastal Center and the Elliott Museum across the Indian River Lagoon. It's like right there. You have to cross Sewell's Point to get to the center and the museum. It was there he began working on a ship he called a quote-unquote hydro aeroplane. He and his team were interested in building a ship that could fly in the sky and land on the water. That double rudder system he developed for the Warhawk was key. He said that pelicans, the actual birds, moved the same way as the double rudders where they would move in specific directions in unison. They, they would sort of dive back down to the water. Think of how pelicans, they have like that, you know, the big head and the big body, and then they sort of go in the same direction to sort of 
jump down to the water. It seems like that's what his his rudders could do. They could sort of just like focus in on the direction they wanted to go. And so that that reminded him the way the pelicans flew reminded him of those rudders, which is why he named the ship the pelican. And the essential detail, the iconic design of his pelican, was a pair of slender boat shapes that could float on the water, the thing that allowed it to float, sort of be a boat. Picture a modern airplane that can land on the water, the hydroplane of today. It has those two, like, banana-shaped flotation structures underneath, right? You know what I mean? They almost look like big canoes or maybe a little bit bigger. They're just those, they're right underneath the wings, and they sort of land this, the way that, like, wheels would land on ground. That's exactly what Willoughby's Pelican looked like, the first of its kind. His design is now the standard for what that type of water landing plane looks like. Apparently, the Wright brothers had a similar idea of landing a, a plane on water, but their idea seemed to be more just like a big boat on the bottom of the plane. But those sort of two banana-shaped uh, boat things in the bottom of the plane, that was Willoughby's idea. That's exactly what Willoughby's plane looked like. There are these amazing photos of the Pelican being tested floating on Florida water or sitting on Florida beaches. Just as Kitty Hawk and other beaches proved vital for the Wright brothers, Florida's ocean air and expansive water proved the right place for Willoughby to try out his water air vehicle. He tried a few ways to get the ship to launch. One option was using a little boat to push it on the water and then sort of get to right speed and then launch from there. But it turns out it needed a, a heavier type of engine in order to propel it even stronger than the one that was on other planes. So finally, he got the thing flying and it was a success. He was able to fly apparently over the St. Lucie River to the west of, of where he lived. And it was so successful that he was able to sell more of them. He started his own company attempting to sell planes like the Pelican to other wealthy men who had an interest in flying off on their little adventures. He himself would continue to be a flying sportsman taking off on his own trips to the sky later into his life making him the oldest pilot at the time with a pilot license signed by Orville Wright himself. Though he had many successes, he was a part of many different organizations and companies and leadership boards, and oh my god, the guy's resume is endless. I'm most excited about his pelican. When he passed away at the age of 82, he died in Florida, in that slim peninsula, Sewell's Point, right here in Florida. Today, a stone's throw across the water from his home, a replica of the pelican hangs in the Elliott Museum. Willoughby's story is the kind of story that you find in the footnotes of history, though he wrote a book himself, a book we will read and discuss more later this year, I promise. Willoughby is the kind of figure that weaves in and out, never a main character, no statues built in his name, though his impact is felt. His design of the hydroplane is still a part of airplane design, and the usage of that motor propeller at the front of the plane that was used in his Warhawk became a standard in years to come. The same with those double horizontal rudders. He had ideas that, that became integrated into airplane design. We know the Wright brothers. Nobody really knows Hugh Willoughby. Some people want to become historical figures, perhaps Willoughby was one of them, but it seems to me he tried to make history while sincerely doing the things he loved. He really was passionate about this. He was flying well into his older years at a time when maybe that was not the safest idea. He was that obsessed with the idea of flying. Even when it was at the very earliest stages, there was nothing to keep you safe. 
Willoughby was not only designing those planes, but designing ways to keep him safe in them. Certainly got in wrecks. Certainly he crashed. There's a great story of him having to be saved by the Coast Guard with his little engine out in the water, but he survived because he cared. He wanted this to succeed, and he had the wealth to burn on these ideas. I don't know if that makes him a great figure in history. I don't know if it makes him an important figure in history. But if you are lucky enough to walk into a random museum on a Friday afternoon and stumble upon a replica of his airplane, a needle in a haystack of a thousand other incredible historical artifacts, you'd be lucky to find a figure like Hugh Willoughby behind the airplane in the showroom. I was lucky that on that day, of all the stories I could have picked up on and found myself diving headfirst into, I'm glad it was Hugh Willoughby. Because one of the things that is true of Hugh and all these pictures you see of him, whether he's in the Everglades, whether he's in an air balloon in Paris, whether he's getting ready to fly one of his planes, whether he's just taking a portrait. One of the things that is absolutely true of Hugh Willoughby is at a time where there's pictures of people and they're just stoically glaring into the camera, Hugh Willoughby is smiling. No matter what you think of him, no matter what his place in history was, Hugh Willoughby had one hell of a time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you are here. If you are new to this show, welcome. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps the show grow. It brings new listeners into the show, and it means a lot to me. If you want to find the show on social media, you can do so on Instagram or Facebook at WFMPod, or you can send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. I haven't gotten to mention this in a little while. I guess I've forgotten, but I contributed to a book called Florida. It's published by the film company A24. They recently won Best Picture for the movie Everything Everywhere All at Once. I had nothing to do with that. But the book was published by them also, so I will act like I had anything to do with that. I won't claim any association that I can. But Florida, great book. I got to contribute to it along with my friend Gabrielle Khaleesi, who's the editor who contributed some of her amazing writing as well. Go check out that book. Pick up your copy. It is beautiful. There's some amazing writers inside of there who contributed some incredible stuff. Go give it a read. I promise it is worth it. I pick it up and read it all the time, and I'm in it. I, I know I know what the contents are, and I still am like, man, what a good book. So go pick up a copy. There's a link in the episode description. You can get yours. All the music used in this episode was originally composed. All right, folks, it is April now. We've got a few more episodes left in this season. I am thrilled for the things ahead of us. We're going to be talking about some really interesting history that I've been wanting to talk about for a little while. We're going to get into that next week. So I will see you next Monday with a brand new episode, maybe the first episode of a two-parter. We'll see how the schedule works out. But I will see you next Monday for a new episode no matter what. Until then, be good to yourself, be good to others, drink more water, and go Gator and muddy the water. Have a great week. I will see you next Monday.